0: So I would draw your attention to the three little lovelies on the screen. These are my grandsons. The big guy in the back is Tristan, and he just turned 14, and God bless him for being so patient to take such a corny picture with his two little brothers, right? Severin is on the right. Severin is seven years old and when he learned to count we were counting one two three four five six seven he said it's not seven it's severin i said no that's your name seven is a number (laughs) and severin has uh, a few little special needs he has a slight form of autism but his autism is so cool because He sees things in such unique ways that I would never dream of seeing them, and he is super smart. He's reading at a, in first grade, just finished first grade, is reading at a fourth grade level. Is doing third grade math, but has really difficult time with impulse control and his emotions. And then we have Holden on the left. Holden is the oldest man of the group at age five, and I desperately want him to get here to family camp because I've already picked out Holden's wife. (laughs) You've seen her. It's Debbie Ackerman's littlest granddaughter, (laughs) lady, who is just Full of just all things lovely and wonderful and I think that they would just make this great pair because they're the two oldest people I've ever met in my life so I think they would they would make a great a great couple but maybe Severin who knows I just got to get them here so that they can meet but I want you to remember their faces because I'm going to talk about something that just recently happened in our family but I want to start out first by getting past first verse of James So let's read it together. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings! Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I want to shout victory in Jesus at that verse. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I'm convicted every time I read that. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness... And all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was." But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our god and father is this to visit the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world i gave you guys an outline yesterday and um what i'd like you guys to do with it if you want to this is for your use so that as we go through when we break this down the notes for you that are that are important that you want to remember about that paragraph or that topic—that's for you to insert that in there. So that if you want to use this at another date with another group or for yourself and review, you've got some kind of order to that. This is your outline; you own it. At the end of the week, I'm going to provide you with an uh, with an outline uh, from two or three different people who have written books on. The book of James and they have their own titles for each chapter in each section and I'm going to provide that to you just so you can see that there's not a wrong answer let God's Word speak to you let it apply to you because if we're just gonna fill our heads with information and knowledge and not be able to put it to work as James tells us to that's not faith that's knowledge and we want to move beyond knowledge and into faith. So in these first sections, this first section of James, we have some key words in chapter 1. Trials, endurance, perfect, and complete. Now trials, this simply means to try to to try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing to examine, a putting to proof. This might actually be something that you would put on trial in a courtroom. You would investigate it. You would ask it questions. You would look at it and say, what's the purpose of this? What does it mean? Why, why is it there? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? You would investigate it by asking questions to decide the character of it. So a trial for a Christian is, what, am I, what is happening? What is my response? This is my trial. So we think of a trial as being a difficulty. It is a difficulty, but it's a difficulty with purpose because it's going to reveal something to you and to others. Testing then is that by which something is tried and approved. To try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing. Now, I know some of you guys are really into, like, NCIS and CIS and all those alphabet letters that they throw out there for all those crime shows, you know. Um, uh, There are some that are, like, you know, fictitious, like NCIS, and then there are those that are, like, real crime stories. And you see them gathering evidence, and they're testing it, and they're determining what is the DNA and whose DNA is in the and who committed the crime. And they're using that, and they go to the lab, and they put it under a microscope. This is that kind of a testing. You are under a microscope. Endurance, then, means to literally abide under the pressure. Living under the pressure with perseverance and patience. So. That makes me think of Jesus saying, you abide in me, I abide in the Father. We're living in the pressure of that, right? And then that brings its perfect result, which is to be fully developed. That which has reached maturity. Now you can't reach maturity without going through a few growing pains. Now, when I remember when I was a girl, and at, sometimes at night, I'd lay in bed, and I would cry because my legs hurt so bad. And those were growing pains, from running all day and playing, and your bones and your muscles were being stretched, and it hurt. It, it hurt a lot. And there was nothing anybody could give you for that. You just had to learn to live with it until that time was passed so sometimes these things that happen in our life the trials that provide endurance that result in us being perfect complete to full maturity or at least on the road to maturity because I don't know about you but I know that I really lack in maturity sometimes I think we all do And I think we'd like to write that off sometime as, oh, I'm just young at heart, or I'm just really selfish, and I just want things my way. You know, which is it? Am I young at heart, or am I really selfish? Well, I'm probably really selfish, quite honestly. So when I look at that, when I look at that trial, endurance, perseverance, completeness, from a counseling standpoint, I see a crisis cycle. Now a crisis cycle is kind of an interesting thing. Every single one of you in this room right now along with me are in a crisis cycle. Whether you know it or not because you're either pre-crisis, crisis or post-crisis. And post-crisis my friends is just another pre-crisis phase in your life. So, when we work with women and families, or we work with our friends and our neighbors who are going through difficulty, and they're cruising through life, they're, they're, you know, they're just moving, and then the wall of crisis happens, and boom, they go into a pit. Now, the pit of the crisis cycle is very much like the grief cycle. There's denial. This isn't happening, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, this is not happening. Okay, what if this is really happening? Um, okay, God, if this is really happening, let's strike a deal. I'll give, you a, I'll, give you, I'll give you 20 hours of community service. Lord, if you just take this away, if you just fix this. Nope. God, you didn't take it away and you didn't fix it. Um, okay, now, this isn't my fault. This is not my fault that I'm in this situation, in this crisis. This is Linda's fault. Linda did this to me. Linda is always, this is, okay, so Linda's my cousin, for those of you who don't know. So when we were growing up, truly, I'm the younger cousin, so it really was Linda's fault. It really was Linda's fault, but here was Linda in any crisis, ah, down the road, and that's a true story. She thought her sister's head fell off one day, and she ran down the road, but that's another family story that'll go in the book, but... I'm angry at you for your part in putting me in this crisis. Oh, not your fault? Oh, you can't fix it? Well, then it's the other guy's fault. No, not his fault? Oh, then it's God's fault. God's at fault. Now I'm angry at God. No. Oh, no. Finally, I grieve the fact that I have made choices possibly that I have made choices that have placed me in this position. And whether I'm at fault, whether I sinned, whether it's just something that happened, maybe the guy really did cut me off in traffic and I rear-ended him, but you know, sometimes things just happen. But how are you going to handle that in that moment? That is the resolution. I'm going to resolve towards a solution, and depending on The route that you take to get out of that pit will determine what your post-crisis life looks like. Are you going to be at a lower level of coping for the next crisis because you were rescued, because you sat in the bottom of the pit, and you waited for the rescuer to come? And they had to come, and they showed sympathy, Or pity and they scooped you up and they carried you out and you didn't build any muscle getting out of that pit because you were rescued or did you try to claw your way out and now you've damaged yourself or did you shout throw me a rope And the prayer was answered, and the rope came, and it was anchored to the rock on the other side, and you climbed up out of the rock, or out of the pit, with the rope and the rock, because somebody gave you empathy, or you prayed, and God answered that prayer. But you're not crippled. Guess what? You built some muscles, right? So the next time you fall into a pit, you know hopefully know a little bit better about how to get out of the pit. That's the crisis cycle. Your trials produce endurance and patience to maturity. This is, we're all going through it. I know some of you right now are thinking, ooh, where am I at? Am I pre, oh, oh, I think I'm in a pit. Sometimes the pit comes very slowly. Sometimes it's a very slow downward slope and you can't move forward anymore because you've hit a wall and now you've got to go up and then you've got, to, you've got to realize I can't go back the way I came because there is no reverse. You can't go back in time and change what happened. So you have to get the help. You have to seek the Lord for that help. You have to ask your brothers and sisters, your fellow Christians to throw you the rope. This is not the rescue. Getting a rope is a lot different than getting the rescue. Now, granted, I, I'm, I don't want you to think that I'm bashing the rescue because there are definitely times that there is rescue needed, right? Because there are times that we are completely helpless to do anything on our own, and we need people to come alongside of us and do those things. So we have to be careful, as the person who's holding the rope to the person in the pit, that we're keeping the rope anchored to the rock ourselves. And that when they get stuck, we're willing to pull. Because some people just aren't strong enough yet. So there's a part for all of us to play in one another's crisis cycle. But the part that we forget and the part that always drives me crazy is that when we get to James and we read verse 2, consider it all joy, Woohoo! That really makes it seem like we're rejoicing in the midst of that trial. I don't believe that that's the case. I think he's talking to them in their post-crisis situation, saying, look, you went through the first thing, now, come on, time to grow up, time to mature. Let's count it all joy. You survived. We're going to move on. We're going to pick up where we're going to go. We're going to look back, and we're going to rejoice at the good things that God did do, right? And we've got to stop pointing fingers and blaming others. We see Romans 5, through, uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 is almost exactly what James is saying here. So if we looked at Romans 5... 3-5, through five it says, <clears throat> and actually I think I'm going to start at verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, so again, speaking to believers, right, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope and the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who who was given to us. Hey, God got me through it once. He's going to get me through it again. I can trust that. I can trust that that is what God is going to do because that's the plan that God has. First Peter talks about that, the rejoicing in their faith and the testing and that because their faith was found genuine and their salvation was the outcome. And he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal or the trial Just keep on rejoicing. Rejoicing in the midst is really hard. I think it's really an attitude of thankfulness. Thank You Lord that even though we're going through this right now, I know You're still in control. Thank You Lord that even though this is happening right now, I know that You're there. Thank you, Lord, for providing my friends and my family who love you, who have come alongside, who are throwing me a rope. Monday night of this week, we were all in Tabernacle. Most of us were in Tabernacle. And I did not know it. But while we were here at Bayshore my daughter's family was experiencing a trial. My youngest grandson was missing. He was there at 10 minutes to the hour. She talked with him, he was there. She put uh, dinner on the table. 10 minutes later, he wasn't there. Holden, where are you? Holden, come on, time to eat. Holden, Holden. Holden's not in the house. Their front yard is a lake, their backyard is the woods. There are bears in the woods. You go to the end of their dock at their property and you cannot touch the water. You can't touch the ground, the bottom of the lake at the end. They have a shallow end that they've made for the kids, but you go off. It's over my head. Like, I've never touched the bottom of that when I've tried to jump off that pier. She runs outside. Holden, where are you? Holden, come on, time to eat. Tristan, help me find Holden. Severin? Where'd Holden go? Neil is laid out with a back injury. She's, Beth says, Neil, I've looked all through the house. I can't find Holden. I don't see him outside. His bike's still here. I don't know where he went. We gotta look for him. Neil takes off. I mean like a man who could not walk five minutes before that jumps up takes off down the road, and he's searching for his five-year-old little boy. And they're searching, and they're calling him, and they're searching, and they're searching. She is going through every room of the house frantically, looking for him, looking in beds, under beds, in closets. You're not in trouble, honey. Come on out, come on out. In the next five minutes, she says, we have to call 911. Within minutes, four state troopers were there. They were calling in backup. They had people going to all the neighbors up and down the road. People had started walking through the woods. She's shaking. She's crying. She looks at this trooper, and she says, I don't know what to do. I I just feel like I need to throw up. He said, then throw up. Well, he didn't get out of the way fast enough. This is the funniest part (laughs) of the story. So Ruth's like, "Uh uh-huh. The adrenaline, the rush, the rescue that came, the ropes that were thrown, everybody looking for him, state troopers in and out of her house, people down at the water, they've called in a dive team. The helicopters have been called. The police are going through her house and literally grabbing things out of her closets and throwing them out, searching for him, pulling things out from underneath the bed. She said, Mom, my house looks like a war zone. It looks like a bomb exploded in here. She's like, I have, I have to go in the house and look one more time. I, I don't know where you I can't, I just don't know. So she calmed herself down. Lord, help me. I have to find Holden. She went into Tristan's bedroom, and she thought, I'm turning every piece of furniture upside down in this house. He is, I know he is somewhere. She flips his mattress upside down. Holden had fallen asleep and was trapped between the mattress and the wall, wrapped like a burrito in the blanket. Two state troopers searched that room and didn't find him. Two parents searched that room previously and didn't find him. Two grandparents that live up there didn't find him. She finally found him. She called for a rope and the rope came. She scooped him up. She's trying to wake him up. Is he breathing? Did he suffocate? He wakes up, and he says, all I want is a nap. (laughs) And he falls right back to sleep. She runs outside, and she's, I've got him! I've got him! I found him! He's here! I found him! Everybody's making all this noise. They're not hearing her. (laughs) she's running up to them, I have him. And finally, they're like, we've got him. Call off the dive team. Call off the (laughs) helicopters. Everybody can go back. But you know what ended up missing from the story? Do you know what people said to her? Well, this is a good opportunity for you to talk to Holden about safety, about the lake, this is an you need to talk to him about where where he's playing. The boy wasn't in the lake. He was asleep. He was innocent. He did not create the problem. It was a trial and a testing they went through as a family that was free of sin. Nobody sinned to cause that trial. But it did it Bring them to an experience, yes. You know what they missed? They missed the rejoicing after. We have a mother and a father who were rejoicing because he was found. And we had others who wanted to point the finger and say, you messed up. I don't know why that was. You messed up. You have to talk to him. He did nothing wrong. When are we going to learn that when somebody is in a trial, and a testing, a time to prove their endurance, a time to prove their faith, that instead of being encouragers and faith builders, when are we going to stop tearing them down? When are we going to come alongside of them? When are we going to do the rejoicing? When, when we hear a salvation story about somebody who's been lost a long time, who's walked a long road to recovery from addiction or divorces or abuse of some kind, or they've just plain been wandering from the Lord. When we hear their salvation story, when are we gonna stop saying, well, you know, I just can't believe he really got saved. You know what he was like when he was 15 years old and I had him in 10th grade? The man's 45 years old. Can we get over it? (laughs) Right? You know what I'm talking about. You go to a family reunion, and the next thing you know, you're behaving like your 12-year-old self because that's what everybody expects from you. Well, let's stop doing that. Let's stop doing that in the church. Let's start treating them like who they are, who they are in Christ. Let's walk them through that time of trial and testing so that they can persevere and have endurance and be the mature man. Let's do that. Let's try that. Let's let our faith show in what they're going through. When they're weak, he's strong. But he gives us strength too, so let's try that. Let's rejoice. I'm rejoicing that they found Holden and that I'm not up there this week for a funeral. I'm rejoicing that she said, Lord, I just need to find Holden. And he sent the rope. Let's rejoice in that. Let's be stronger because of that. So we don't just go through this stuff so that we have a great testimony, Right? Like, it's great to have a great testimony, right? I'm just looking at the time. But God gives us this so that it's more than a story. It's more than a testimony. But it's going to give us a way to use our faith in the future. Ephesians 4 is one of my favorite chapters. And that's because in Ephesians 4 it says, Some are called to be apostles. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be preachers. And it goes on and on and on. But you know what else it says? It says why they're called. Why were they called to those things? Do you remember? Say it nice and loud because the fan's loud. For the equipping of the saints. For what end? until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We go through trials and, and testing and temp, all that stuff for the endurance, for the perfection. And he gives us the spiritual gifts that we need the equipping that we need, the rope that we need so that we can use our pastoral gifts, our teaching gifts, our evangelism gifts, our uh, gifts of hospitality. You name the gift, he's given it to you because it's a rope. It's a rope. The tool that he's given you. And the result is this. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We become wise after we've been in the pit a few times, and we can tend to see the enemy at work a little bit further ahead, and either we're going to build a bridge to get over the pit or we're going to reroute ourselves, right? It's a good thing. In verses 5 through 8 of James, we we begin the topic of God's wisdom. Because, my goodness, in the time of trial and testing and tempting, don't we need God's wisdom? So how does, because this is all one letter, this is all one thought, this is one continuous teaching here in James chapter 1. To a church who's persecuted and dispersed and living among the Greeks... Why would it be important for James to write to believers living among the Greeks about the wisdom of God? Who are the Greeks? The worldly system, the worldly philosophers, the great knowledgeable people of the time. So he's encouraging them, get out of the mindset that you've been simmering in and soaking in and marinating in. You're in this worldly wisdom right now among the Greeks. Leave that, leave that foolishness of the world, of the Greek world and the Greek philosophers, and seek God's wisdom, which he tells us in Romans, is deeper than any man's understanding. The wisdom of God is greater and broader and deeper than any understanding. So the faith and the doubting bring us together. And of course, Hebrews, we've already heard it this morning Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it men gained approval and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, first of all what? to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder to who? To those who seek him, not just anybody, but to those who are seeking him, he's rewarding. Some other texts you might want to reference on your own are Matthew 7 uh, and Mark 11. Those are great verses for you to cross-reference. So that takes us to the double-minded man, right? Right? So we see this tossing and turning this back and forth. We've got God's wisdom, the world's wisdom, the Greek and and all the philosophy that they want to bring to you. But you know what? I was thinking, I'm gonna hide that bottom one. Let's go to First Kings 19. Because I started praying. Lord, I need an example of a really good guy, some guy that from scripture that like is really cool and I really like like him. You know? And he was like, "Oh, yeah, April. Thanks for asking." <laughs> so if we go to First Kings chapter 19, let's see how this wise person handled a time of trouble. verses 14 through 28. Did I get the right verse? Oh, is it 1 Kings or 2 Kings? Not Elijah. It could be another April typo or God saying, nope, that was just for you. Ah, it is 2 Kings 19. My apologies. This is Hezekiah's prayer. Now... The situation was grim. It's it's grim. You know, Hezekiah is the king. They got a lot of enemies. Things are things are looking pretty bad. He gets a messenger that delivers a letter, and you know you never want to be a messenger with a letter. Usually, not a good thing in the Old Testament to be the message bearer, like. You know, they always say bad news comes by certified mail. This is like certified mail. But then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Yes! Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You're the man, God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. This tells me Hezekiah knows who God is. He knows full well the God that he serves, right? Incline your ear, O oh Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O oh Lord, and see, and listen to the words of, of Cherubim, which he has sent to reproach. I know I didn't say his name right. That's okay. He is sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may that you alone, O Lord, our God. That they would know that you alone, O Lord, our God. That they would know that you alone are God. And what happened? He delivered. God delivered. And they praise God for it. And boy, they're so happy. And then, I'm sure this is a typo too, chapter 20. Verses 12 through 21, 2 Kings. uh, Verses 12 through 21, this is sometime later. Hezekiah had become ill. He prayed that he'd be healed. He was healed. God spared his life. And now let's see how Hezekiah has changed. At that time, this one dude from another kingdom of Babylon sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, Mm. for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. You know, so he probably got, you know, a dozen roses and a box of chocolates or something. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all of his treasure house. The silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, hey, these are my new friends from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing that I did not show them. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons... Who shall issue from you whom, you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, Is, not, is it not so if there will be peace and truth in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought all the water into the city are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And then Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. He stopped letting God be the God above all and he placed himself in that spot. He claimed that that was his kingdom, that was his treasure, that was his glory. Look what he had done. Look what he accomplished. Hezekiah's eyes went from being on God to being on himself. He became an immature, selfish little man. Forgive me. But, what did he say? Oh. This is going to happen after I die? I'm good with that. That's the same mistake Solomon made. And the kingdom divided into the north and the south. Because Solomon was warned. He was warned, you are not being obedient to God. This entire nation is going to suffer because of the choices that you are making. And Solomon said, when? Oh, your sons are going to have trouble. Oh. Will I be here? No, you'll be dead. Okay, I'm cool with that. Hezekiah turned around and committed the same sin. He took his eyes off God, stopped giving God the glory. When he needed God, he asked for a rope. God sent the rope. He sent it to him multiple times. He won battles. He defeated death. And then turned his back on all that and said, Look at how grand my kingdom is. This is a double-minded man. He quickly forgot what his face looked like in the mirror when he went back to the world. How sad is that? You know what's sad I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I get so excited about what I've created or what I've done or the great things that Are happening in the ministry or in my life, and I sometimes forget to say, Look what the Lord did for us. And then I'm in a pit because I've hit a crisis. And sometimes it's a crisis of belief. Let's learn from this because what happened, the golden treasures were carried away. What does James say about what is gonna wither and wilt? And again, this is a Greek reference about what is withering and what is wilting. Um, We've got the brother in humble, humble circumstances to glory in the high position, the rich man's to glory in humiliation, for the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is a Greek reference. Because what happened in Greek competitions? You want a race, right? What did they give you? They gave you a crown. What was your crown? Flowers, grass, leaves. It was beautiful. How long did it last? It didn't last. It dried up and went away. So it didn't, it didn't matter that you got that earthly crown, because it was going to perish. So when we put our faith, like Hezekiah did, in his gold and his silver and all that stuff, it it was gone. Once he was dead, he couldn't. That, I mean, it was gone. We can win races and win medals. We can even win ice cream in a race at Bayshore Camp. And not that that isn't a good thing, because I think that that's a great thing for those kids that won, right? But the ice cream's gone, the glory is faded. So we can't waste our time being jealous about the ones that got the ice cream versus those that didn't because guess what? The ice cream's already gone. Let's not waste our time being double-minded about that because the rich man and the poor man get the same blessing when they persevere through their trials and they endure and they reach maturity, right? What's it say they get? The crown of life. The crown of life. That's where the praise is, is in the crown of life. It's not a crown that I'm worried about. It's it's that you've got it or you don't have it. It's not slipping on and off. It's You're not taking it on and off. You either have it or you don't have it. You are what you are, and that's the reward. You know, it's also interesting in in the book of James, because they have these Greek references, these subtle Greek references to philosophers, Greek philosophers and stuff, and we're going to talk about that tomorrow a little bit, but also the deep Jewishness of this, the word blessed, because they were really, really into being blessed, that was a big deal for the Jews of the Old Testament, because They were always given these lists of do's and don'ts. If you do this, you're blessed. If you don't do this, you're not blessed. If you do this, you're blessed. If you don't do this, you're not blessed. Back and forth. So the blessing of the Lord was very important to them. So James is using their cultural heritage, blending it with their Greek upbringing, to bring them to a truth, right? Isn't that cool? So stop worrying about what all your Greek neighbors have. Stop being jealous about that because what did we talk about yesterday about the dispersion and fleeing? what they take with them? Nothing. Some of them left everything behind. They left their wealth behind. They left their houses. They left family members who were not believers behind. They left their worldly goods behind. They, they took what they could carry to get away from Jerusalem. So this issue for them of being among these wealthy Greeks must have been difficult. That must have been a trial in itself to have lost everything. Have you ever lost everything? Have you ever lost everything in a house fire? Have you ever lost a job unexpectedly? You're in your office one day, they walk in and they say, We're gonna stand here while you pack your desk because you're done. Because um, we're merging and there's not a position for you. So thank you for your time, but you have 15 minutes and we'll walk you out the door. This has happened. This has happened to people you know who've had to learn a new dependence on God. This is people who walked into a doctor's office healthy And walked out dying of cancer this is people who have gotten in a car as a family and came back without members of the family because we can't put our trust and our faith in the things of this world we can't put it in the people around us because we can't live as double-minded men we just can't he expects so much more from us. So, I'm gonna leave it there, right? I think it's time that we lay down our disappointments in what we don't have. And it's time that we pick up the crown that we were intended to wear, the crown of life. And that we give God praise and we give Him the glory for that, that we're wearing that. Because you know what? Even that is temporary. Because what happens in Revelation? What happens when the 24 elders give us the example? Revelation 4 5 through 11. And the 24 elders were worshiping God around his throne. Praise and worship, praise and worship, praise and worship. Because the lamb was worthy and they cast their crowns down. Wear your crown of life, but be willing to cast down your life before the throne. Cast it before the throne. And then there's the victory.